Welcome back to episode 27 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast where we look at the readings coming up in our chronological reading plan, discuss the most interesting bits, and answer any questions that you have. We have a special guest today, and her name is Olivia Pouye. She's one of our deacons at Calvary and a good friend of mine. How are you doing, Miss Olivia? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you here as well. Pastor Ben has a very busy summer. He's been gone several weeks, and this week while he is around, um, we scheduled a guest because he might have been out of town, and we just thought it would be fun to have Miss Olivia on, and so this was a perfect time to do that. Yes, the timing is impeccable. <laughs> All righty. Well, the first thing we like to do is we like to answer questions that were sent in, and we did have one question that was sent in, and the question comes from 2 Kings chapter 2 where Elisha is beginning his ministry as a prophet. And there's this scene that's kind of strange where he's got the, the, the spirit that had rested on Elijah now. And as he's walking, some young men approach him and they call him Baldy. And then Elijah or Elisha prays and God sends two bears to maul the young men. Now, some parts of the story are hard because the word can be translated boys or little children, which it probably doesn't mean. It is almost certainly talking about like mid, mid to late teenagers, like a gang of, of people. And so why do they call him Baldy? Well, baldness in ancient Israel was a, a very bad thing. Your hair was a sign of life and a sign of blessing, whether it was in your beard or on top of your head. And so, especially since Elisha does not appear to be a old man at this point, he's pretty young, his baldness is unsightly or a little bit shameful. And so, the pointing it out is a kind of disrespect that you would pay to someone that you were jeering, mocking, intending harm towards. And so, I think what we're supposed to read from that is that Elisha was in danger, and this was kind of the signal that he was in danger. Calling someone bald in our culture would not usually bring down the wrath of Yahweh. Um, but at that time, it seems like it was more of a, a significant insult. But that doesn't change that this is still a very hard story. Like, it's, I think it's okay for you to be uncomfortable with God mauling a whole bunch of teenagers because they called a prophet bald because I'm uncomfortable with it. And the, the rabbis were uncomfortable with it. It's, it's, a, it's a tough story. But that was a good question. Yeah, I think that theme of baldness comes up a lot in Isaiah, too. A yes, lot of the poetry involves shaved heads and uh -huh. symbols of shame and wrongdoing. So That's a good catch. That's definitely. not a connection I made. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Very neat. All right. Well, what we're going to do, our readings for this w coming week are from 2 Chronicles 28 to 31, 2 Kings 16 to 18, the book of Hosea, and then some bits of Isaiah. And so... I'm going to give a summary, and then we're going to discuss it. Great. So, in our Kings and Chronicles readings, we learn primarily about two kings of Judah, Ahaz and his son Hezekiah. Ahaz ruled from Judah from about 735 to 715 BC, and Hezekiah from 715 to 687. And these two make a strong contrast between a wicked king and a righteous one. Ahaz is unable to defend himself against Israel and a few other nations, and so he reaches out to the king of Assyria for help. The king exacts a heavy price and does send help, but that help is short-lived and it's, it's very brutal. Because after taking care of Israel, 
his son is going to take several cities from Judah. So short-lived, the son actually comes and takes cities from Judah as well. The effects of this live on because the Assyrians take tens of thousands of Israelite men into exile and transplant foreigners into Samaria. Then we learn about Hezekiah, a righteous king who restores the temple. He deals as he has to with Assyria, and he holds a magnificent Passover celebration, which brings together people from the northern and southern kingdoms for worship. In the book of the prophet Hosea, we get a tragic story of a prophet who lives out a sermon in the form of a faithful man being told to marry an unfaithful woman and take her back, perhaps even raising children that are not his. Hosea and Amos are the only prophets whose writings are written to the northern kingdom, and Hosea is the only prophet who's from there. And in his book, we hear in him an anger at the injustice happening among God's people, who are supposed to be a light to the world by living in submission to God's law. And then in Isaiah, we get a glimpse of why he is called the most eloquent of the prophets, as he, with beautiful poetry, bemoans the injustices done in Judah and the less than half-hearted devotion of its people to Yahweh. Does that feel like a good summary of what we read? Yeah, that's a beautiful summary. It's well, thank you. a little bit of history and a lot of poetry this week. Yeah, that was, that was exactly right. A lot of poetry. Um, I would love to know, I'd love to start with anything that you had that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I've always had a soft spot for the book of Hosea. I think specifically a lot of Christian women were uh, impacted by the book Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. I don't know if you've ever read it. I have not. It is a fictional retelling of the book of Hosea. Um, and it's really fascinating. I mean, it's really just the first three or so chapters, the the story of, mm-hmm. you know, the righteous man and the unrighteous woman. But it was kind of one of the first, you know, quote, grown up books that I read. Um, I read it when I was in high school, probably too young. And it was like, it's a Christian book, but they're doing bad things. <laughs> um, but, you know, all good. So any uh, it's a great book. Uh-huh. And mostly I've only encountered women who have read it, but okay. it's a very, I don't know, informative book of a time in the early 2000s. I would say a lot of women in the church, my guess is, have read that book and enjoyed it. Why do you think it's marketed primarily to women, considering that the female main character is not one they would necessarily identify with? Right. Uh, I think because it's this story of like unconditional love. Okay. It's a love story. And I think at a lot of women's cores, we crave, wow, like she did the worst of the worst and someone still loved her so much. It's been a long time since I've read it, but okay. um, I remember really enjoying it. If it's bad now, if the times have changed, <laughs> then don't quote me on that. <laughs> Is it from the perspective of Gomer? Yes. Interesting. And I forget that the main character's names are changed. It's actually written as a historical fiction during the gold rush in California. Okay. Um, and there's a minor and a prostitute. Okay. That's interesting. One of the interesting things about the story of Hosea is the words that are translated in different translations as harlot or adulteress or prostitute are a little ambiguous because they can mean any of those. And so she might have been a prostitute. She might have been like a temple prostitute, but more than likely, I think she was just a a woman that was unfaithful. Mm-hmm. Um, if she was a prostitute, we're not to hold about that. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense since um, she's married and would not need the income. It would be a thing she was doing just to do. Right. 
Yeah, I think when I was growing up reading the Bible, I thought prostitutes and harlots would come up a lot more in my adult life. And (laughs) they have not. It's really, um, really just a sign of the the past cultures Mm -hmm. and older times. Um, But something that I did think was interesting a couple weeks ago, you guys talked about Song of Songs Mm -hmm. and how, you know, for a while it was believed to be this allegory and now not so much that it's really to be taken like at its word as, you know, this beautiful book about a man and his wife. And with the contrast with Hosea, I think is so interesting because I do believe it really happened in reality, Hosea and Gomer, but also it seems like God was intending it to be this. Yeah allegorical message or this greater meaning um in a really extreme way where like the names of his children and just spinning 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 down the chaotic uh trail of the book of hosea so i just think it's interesting that you know we have these two books about love and marriage and it comes up so often in the bible but this one's meant to be more yeah. Than just a story of a marriage. It's literally says in the text, like it's intended to be this symbolism from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hosea has a rough go of it. Um, this whole like lived out sermon is a common thing in the prophets. We see it in Ezekiel a lot. It's in Jeremiah too. I mean, in Ezekiel, he like lays on his side for a year and then switches sides for a little while is as a metaphor. Jeremiah, he actually puts himself like in a stock and he's walking around preaching sermons, you know, like in a torture device. And for Hosea, that that lived out sermon is is a marriage to an unfaithful woman experiencing the hurt that Yahweh experiences when his people fall into idolatry. And then the, the shock of being expected to take them back, which is also something, I mean, Yahweh is willing to take the, take his people back, but we see how unfair it is mm-hmm. when it's put into a thing that we can understand, like a marriage. Yeah, it's an interesting story for the Old Testament because it feels very New Testament, Jesus is coming-like in its ways. I think that's part mm. of the draw of that book, Redeeming Love, and part of the draw of the story is there's this, you know, like, you were bad, you're a sinner, but we're reconciled. Like, I love you no matter what, even though you're, you know, doing wrong and sinning again. And so much of the Old Testament, God's like, oh, you you think that you can hit that three times? <laughs> no, you got to hit it five times and I'm going to punish you now. Uh-huh. Versus Hosea, there's this like component of just complete forgiveness and mm-hmm. unconditional love that feels very like Jesus. Yeah, it does feel very Jesus. Not that Jesus isn't in the Old Testament, but right. it contrasts with some of the... The message of, of Jesus, yeah. yeah. It contrasts with some of the other stories in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I agree completely. Did you have any other thoughts um, from Hosea? Um, I really loved, I think it was chapter 11, the the small chapter of hope amidst all of uh-huh. the <laughs> anger. I tend to be drawn towards those more uh-huh. uh, loving and hopeful passages. Although I did, one of my favorites was the tone shift, you know, after chapter 11. Uh-huh. Um, back. Oh gosh, it's just harsh. <laughs> I mean, it feels like chapter 11 would be a great place to end the book of Hosea, but it's not. And, and it may have ended that, ser- like these are all sermons put together. Right. And so that was probably either its own sermon or the end of a sermon and then begins a new one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. Cha- yeah. Chapter 11 is beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, it is 
it's interesting to read it all at once, like to prepare for this podcast. I read it all in a day and tried to just kind of dive in Mm -hmm. when in reality, I'm always curious, like how far apart were these messages? Mm -hmm. It says at the beginning of the book that this covered like multiple reigns of multiple kings. Mm -hmm. So like it feels like a lot to read it all at once. You feel the anger and the hatred. But if this was going on for years and decades, it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Well, that's that's a great point. And that's also something that's important about the Old Testament. We read these stories one after another of God acting in powerful ways. We see God's judgment. But we have to remember that the Old Testament takes place over thousands of years. And so we are getting the the highlight moments. And so a lot of the times, two stories near one another about God's judgment can make it seem like God is just doing this all the time. When in reality, these are, there's long stretches here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I found the final chapter really interesting, chapter 14. Um, just that it was sort of an instruction manual to the Israelites of literally say this, do this, mm-hmm. repent. Um, and it seems so obvious, but, you know, we have an instruction manual too. And how often <laughs> do we ignore it and say, mm, I don't think I'm going to do that or say that. Yep. And he's, and then they had their instruction manual in the law as well that they were ignoring. That's in fact, a big, a big thing in Hosea. Um, I, I, what I love about Hosea, what I, the theme that I feel like is really drawn out here that we also see in Isaiah afterwards is there's a lot of talk about, um, fake devotion or half-hearted devotion, right? Mm-hmm. So the people are, are are obeying some of the rituals and doing what some of the laws say, but it is their hearts that are gone from Yahweh and they're worshiping him as one of many gods, which is the breaking of the first and second commandment, right? That's the, it's a very big problem. And Hosea is, is just, we see the, the anger and hurt and frustration of Yahweh at these things being made a mockery of, and his 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 recurring theme is with with all this idolatry is coming oppression of the poor, and that is a big theme through the prophets. One of the one of the things that I find so interesting about our current um, social climate is that we are a lot of evangelicals are very resistant to ideas of social justice and the need for. Um, the the poor and oppressed to be cared for and given given justice, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. It's more complex to than than to say some evangelicals don't care about justice. That's not true, but the prophets put this huge emphasis on on caring for the poor and needy. Like it's a very big deal to them, and they're very bothered when people will claim to be religious do the religious rituals, and yet ignore the needs of the poor and needy around them. And that's, that's an encouragement and a worry that mm-hmm. I see that I get from reading the prophets, especially Hosea and Isaiah. Uh, I want to point out one more thing in, in Hosea, if I can. Um, so in chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good, and an enemy will pursue him. And it goes on to talk about all these things Israel has done. But this reminds me of the passage in Matthew 25, which is one of the the hardest passages in the New Testament where Jesus is talking and he says, listen, when I come back, 
there's going to be people that cry out to me, Lord, you know, we're yours. And he's going to look at them and say, I never knew you because you didn't feed the hungry and care for the sick and visit those who are in prison. In other words, you claimed faith, but your life did not match it at all. And we can have this idea um, that all that matters are the words we say, right? I'm, I believe in Jesus. I accept him as Lord and Savior. Like all that matters is a faith commitment, a head thing, mm-hmm. where no heart thing has to be involved. And that's just completely wrong. It's wrong in the Old Testament and the New. But that's what's happening here in Hosea is he's saying, listen, you all, you all say you're mine. You know, you're going to temple. You're, you're, you're following some of the rituals. You're doing all of these things. It takes more than that. And that is something that should stop us in our tracks. Not to say that we have to earn our way into God's favor. That's not what we're talking about. But if we have ever let ourselves make our commitment to Yahweh just be a Sunday morning thing, just a words thing, and not also a character and commitment in every part of our life thing, then we've we've missed it completely. Of course, we're going to do that badly and imperfectly, and we're going to struggle, and we're going to have sin struggles. But if our if our commitment to Yahweh is words and no more, then we are not in in the covenant the way we think we are. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I agree. Do you have any other thoughts from uh, from Hosea? Um, I'll leave you with my favorite funny verse. Mm-hmm. I like to put little smiley faces by the verses that make me laugh. It's Hosea four sixteen. Uh-huh. The Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. And I have in just been called a stubborn heifer by my husband and have called him a stubborn heifer. And I just... Thank you for saying that next part, because the idea that Austin's just going around calling you a stubborn heifer no, no, just... was going to be a problem. <laughs> just, just as jokes, you know, farm jokes. So I really enjoyed that verse and relate. <laughs> You and Austin have the funniest, like, rituals of talking to each other. I have, I enjoy them every time I find them. I think that if I were to try to call Lisa a stubborn heifer, you'd never see me again. <laughs> I, I think that'd be, that'd be the end of that. Either because I was in witness protection or because I was dead. It would be one or mm. the other. Yeah, I, I mean, I identify with the stubborn heifer. I relate. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you for that. All right. Um, well, would you like to go to Isaiah or some of the Kings and Chronicles stuff first? Uh, yeah, Isaiah would be great. Let's do it. Let's go to Isaiah. So in the book of Isaiah, we read for today chapters one through five. I mentioned to you that we'd also discuss chapter six because mm-hmm. we, we really didn't last week. But then also we have 12, 17, and 28. Yes. I do want to go on record saying here, my biggest problem with the chronological reading plan shows up in the the breaking up into small bits, things that I do not think are meant to be that way. Some of these parts of Isaiah being here don't make any sense to me at all. But on top of that, I think that Isaiah is meant to be read in big chunks. Like, I, I don't think we're supposed to read little bits at a time. I think we miss things when we do it that way. So if you're frustrated either because you're switching between Kings and Chronicles 15 times in a day, or if you're only reading like a chapter at a time from the prophets. We read Micah 1 last week and, you know, we haven't returned to it at all. I want to tell you that I also am frustrated by it. And if you're not frustrated by it, just know that I am and I felt the need for you to know that. 
So. Yeah. My approach is chunking them and creating my own schedule. Mm-hmm. So with the Isaiah ones, I read Isaiah 1 through 17 mm. all as one large chunk and then just read Isaiah 28 with one of the second Kings readings. Okay. Um, but different things work for different people. Mm-hmm. Don't feel like you have to follow the Bible reading plan just because it's on a yellow piece of cardstock. That's right. You the, can make the your plan own plan. plan is meant for you, not you for the plan. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So what did you think of Isaiah? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I haven't read Isaiah much since probably college when I did a study on it. Um, Something that I kind of noticed was Isaiah really reminded me of Paul's epistles, just in all of the different regions and people groups that he was writing to along the Mm -hmm. way. Um, Except it did not, the beginning of Isaiah, which is the part that we're reading for this, is kind of all of the bad. Um, And none of the redeeming, which Uh I'm sure we'll get to in the next one. And Paul's epistles, you know, they tend to always start with the bad and get to the redeeming love. Um, But yeah, it would just, it was interesting. And I found myself wondering, you know, how spread apart all of these directives and messages were. It starts with all these reigns of kings that Mm -hmm. Isaiah uh, prophesied during. And there's like five of them or four of them. But I like Isaiah because it really starts with a bang. Chapter one is, um, you know, intense and it's got a lot of animal metaphors, which we love. It has a lot of anger. Um, Some of my favorite verses were 113, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. And uh, 15 is one of those verses that I think non-Christians oh, point to and man. say, how could this be a God you worship when you spread out your hands in prayer? I hide my eyes from you even when you offer many prayers. I'm not listening. Because your hands are full of blood. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, a strong out of the gate start to a long book of yeah. uh, warnings and anger and eventually redeeming justice and hope yeah well and isaiah is called the most eloquent of the prophets and i think i mean we see here some of that poetry Mm. that that image of you know you're holding out your hands in prayer and in the old testament um the most common way to pray was with your hands outstretched palms up to the sky and so the picture is a person kneeling or standing with their hands outstretched looking up but their hands are dripping with the blood of those they are not doing giving justice to and so Yahweh doesn't care that you're lifting up your hands in prayer when your hands are dripping with blood. Mm-hmm. And that, man, yeah. Yeah. Um, the next section that was kind of interesting to me was Isaiah three sixteen to 23. Mm-hmm. Um, just because this section specifically talked about women and Maybe I'm just crazy, but as a woman, when there's passages of the Bible directed to women, you kind of just perk up because you don't realize until you are a woman that there aren't a ton of sections really, really specifically um, directed at women. And this passage just made me wonder, this language was so contrasted with the previous section where he was talking, using a lot of militaristic language and aggressive and angry language talking about men. And then the section with women has words like haughty and flirting and strutting. Um, And it was just interesting to me. I don't know if you have thoughts on it. I don't really have a formulated thought. I just thought the section was really interesting to read. Yeah. Well, the, I think what's being said here is 
that the sins of men tend to be in the the violent realm. Um, they're they're dominating and oppressing, and the sins of women tend to be in the vanity realm. Mm. Um, they are they are taking more, it's gluttonous. They're taking more than they need, and I think that. I don't think we're to draw like principles from that. Like this is how men are and this is how right. women are. It does seem like at this time you can imagine a people that have gotten wealthy based off of taking from people. And so the men are being criticized as the ones doing the taking and the oppressing. And the women are being criticized as the ones who are benefiting from that. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if I have thoughts beyond that other than it sounds like he's talking to people that are thoroughly debased. You know, the, the, the men are glorifying in violence and the women are, rather than um, resisting that, are glorifying in the extras. And the men, rather than resisting that, are just continuing to oppress to get more. You know, it's, the, mm-hmm. it's a cycle of wrongdoing. Yeah. I do know verse 21 has been used by many a conservative Christian parent to sway their daughter (laughs) away from getting a nose ring. The the problem with that is (laughs) then they're not supposed to have headbands um, Mm -hmm. or necklaces or earrings or bracelets or veils. That'd be a problem for women on their wedding day. Headdresses, uh, anklets, sashes, perfume like that. That would become tough. Yeah. Yeah. Fine robes and the capes and cloaks, purses and mirrors. Yes. Yeah, we don't want to uh, we don't want to throw too much out here. Yeah, I am neither pro nor con nose ring. I just uh, <laughs> it's interesting the the things that people grasp onto from passages like yes, this. True. Did you ever want to have a nose ring? Never. <laughs> I am not surprised. <laughs> I actually a fun fact about me: I do not even have pierced ears. Oh really? Um, I just was scared of needles growing up and <laughs> never got them pierced since. Hmm. Lisa so. also doesn't have pierced ears, so. You two can be in a club. Yeah. So please don't ever get me earrings as a gift. I will not be able to use them. That's funny. Also, we see in Isaiah a lot of this court language. I'm noticing here in 313, and and we see it a few other times, come let us reason together. These are words that, that bring a court scene to mind. In Isaiah, what we're seeing is Yahweh saying to his people, you're being irrational. Like, let's go into a, a reasoned place and debate and see if, what you're doing makes any sense at all. He's actually saying to Isaiah what Job cried out for. You know, I want my day in court. Mm-hmm. Yahweh's saying to Isaiah, come on, have your day in court. See if you can convince anybody that what you're doing makes any sense at all or is okay in any way. And we see that over and over and over again. And the the threat there is, or the, the problem there is, that the people that are engaged in these behaviors know they're wrong. I think that we we understand that through the biblical record as a whole, that the oppressors, when that oppression is visceral and present, there's some part of them that knows what they're doing is wrong. And they know it's wrong because they do, would not want it to happen to someone they care about, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, that's, a, that's a good measure about whether or not you know something is wrong, is if you would have a problem with this happening in this way to someone you care about. And... And yet they persist in intentional wickedness. That is the men anyway. The women are not not engaging in that kind of visceral thing. And I think that the heavier sin is on the people that are actually doing the active harm. Um, but yeah, that's a, he's saying, come to, come to court. Let me show you why what you're doing doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else from our Isaiah reading stand out to you? 
Um, well, okay, so Isaiah 7, 14 okay. is an iconic verse. Mm-hmm. Um, the prophecy of, you know, the Lord will give you a sign, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. I feel like even when I read that in my head, I hear jingle bells and see snow and Christmas trees. But it's so interesting to read that verse in the larger context and have the very next verse be talking about eating curds and honey. Um, And I just thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the context of that verse because it so often is just for Christmas time. And that makes sense, but it's more than that. Yeah. So that's a great question. So what the the New Testament apostles do with Old Testament prophecy are things that we would not do with Old Testament prophecy. Now, they are allowed because they're apostles and they have the Holy Spirit and the things they write and say are inspired. But what we see here is what looks like a prophecy for a child of Isaiah's, right? And the, the virgin here is almost certainly referring to Isaiah's wife. And the, uh, the Emmanuel is almost their, almost certainly their child. And that prophecy is very important for Isaiah, and it matters here in the, the context of the, the readings. But the reason we pull it out at Christmas time is because Matthew does. So in Matthew chapter 1, this is referred back to as a prophecy that is fulfilled by Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that means that it is, I, I think we can be confident that it is a prophecy about Jesus that is being fulfilled. However, one of the things that's important for us to do is to recognize that in these prophets, prophecies, there can be multiple layers to a single, a single statement, right? Yahweh can be talking about something that's happening now, also something that is hap- going to happen soon in the future, also something that is going to happen far in the future. He can, he can construct all of those layers of meaning into, into one statement. And I'm comfortable with that, but it can be a surprise when you read this thing that has always been a, a Christmas thing about Jesus and say, now, wait a second, I, this doesn't look like it's talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And because the very next, after you said curds and honey, and then knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. I mean, we, we don't really think of Jesus as having to learn how to reject wrong and choose right. But right. This is clearly not about him. And yet it's also about him. Yeah. Yeah. Did that make sense? Oh, it made sense. Good. Now, that was a great question. Um, thank you. So, so I want to look at a few things from the beginning of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, um, you know, the beginning is all harsh. And it's, you didn't say all harsh. It's just kind of filled with the harshness. But we do see some very famous, um, wonderful verses here yeah. in chapter 2. Yes. And so we get in um, 1 to 5, we get these beautiful verses about the last days. And a lot of people will ask the question about what what is Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about like a redemption and renewal that's happening before the time of Jesus? Is he talking about the time of Jesus? Or is he talking about something that's still in our future? And I think that there are probably fulfillments, smaller fulfillments that happen along the way, right? Positive moments that that happen is, as partial fulfillments of this. But it really does seem to me that this is a a futuristic look at the far future, even for us, when Jesus returns because of the way he talks about it. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of God. He'll teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. 
The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is a statement about peace that is brought to the world by, by Jesus. And that did not happen in his first coming. And so mm -hmm. I think that we have this promise of this beautiful picture that will happen when he returns. And that's, I don't know, I find those words, when the prophets do that, we all get excited, right? We love hearing about the future, you know, and, the, the, and, and we believe that Yahweh can do that. But this phrase in particular, you know, beating their swords into plowshares is pretty well known in, as, a, as a verse from scripture talking about that future hope when there will be no more violence, no more harm, no more hardship. And I just think that's incredibly beautiful. The idea of, of nations getting rid of their weapons and turning them instead into means of, of positive contribution as a, a sign of the kingdom that is to come. Yeah. I love that yeah, picture. It's beautiful. So in Isaiah chapter five, verses 20 to 23, we also have these, these quips or this turn of phrase that shows just how eloquent Isaiah is. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. What I love about this and hate about this is it's easy for us to read, at least at the beginning, and think about all the people that we think are bad as fitting that the that's who, that's what Isaiah is talking about. And then we Americans get to the point where he says, those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, in other words, who are gluttons. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that this kind of gluttony is at someone's expense and you're enjoying far more than you should, knowing that that is coming at a cost to those who do not have enough. And that that's something for us to really be struck by, I think, and really wrestle with. Gluttony is one of the sins that is just kind of accepted in American culture. Um, it's a sin I struggle with. It's a weird sin because uh, gluttony with food can't be hidden. I mean, you can't hide that, that that's a struggle of yours. Once you pass your mid-20s or so, that just becomes obvious to, to the people mm -hmm. around you. But it's also a sin that we just do not put a whole lot of stock into in America. And it's because we're just filled with so much plenty everywhere. I think that we've become desensitized to it. But Isaiah has a problem with it, a real problem with it, because, again, when you're enjoying more than you need, while others have less than they need, the picture is that you are, in some ways, participating in that injustice. And that's, that's something for everyone who's listening to, to ask themselves about and wrestle with and maybe repent of. Um, yeah. It's yeah. Just, I think pithy for today the language of this section really reminded me of proverbs mm -hmm. just in its rhythm and cadence and yeah yeah you're right it does it reads like proverbs it's a good it's a good observation should we talk about isaiah 6 yes oh iconic it is iconic <laughs> well i love this passage because it's just some of the 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 best imagery in the bible and we get this scene like we have a few other times in scripture. We see in Zechariah, we see in 1 Kings, we get these glimpses into the throne room of God. 
And I think Isaiah is the most well-known because it's like a first person. We can all put ourselves in the place of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And we get this this idea of Isaiah being, he's either having a vision or he's he's literally called into the spiritual realm. I'm not even sure if those two things are different, right? But he's he's there before the throne of Yahweh, which is, I mean, I cannot imagine the effect this would have on a person for the entire rest of their life. And he hears these, these angels and the seraphim, um, it's interesting, that word, because when we think of, what do you think of when you picture uh, that word seraphim? What's the picture that's called to mind? I think of an angel with yeah. six wings. With six wings, right? But like a person with six oh, wings, right? Yes. Like maybe a, a little halo. Mm-hmm. The, the name is either related to or exactly the same as the snake in the garden. Like it's a, it's a mm. serpent is mm-hmm. the picture here. And it's got wings. And we find out at other places that seraphim are described as having eyes all over their, themselves. Like, they're not two-eyed. They're many-eyed. Yes. It's the pretty angels that we have from art from the Middle Ages that have kind of lasted all the way today to today is our image of what angels are in the Bible is wrong. These would have been foreign, scary-looking, fiery, serpenty, flying, filled-with-eyes things. Yeah, there was a trend this year around Christmas in which people took toilet paper tubes to make their own biblically accurate angels and <laughs> covered them in craft feathers and then just really? glued uh, those googly eyes all <laughs> over the toilet paper tube and put them on top of their Christmas trees. Mm. Uh, feel free to look that up if that would spark joy, but it was it was funny. Or terror. It, <laughs> it sparked joy or nightmares, yes. right? One or the other. But then they're shouting and, you know, like the whole the whole temple shakes, but he's not in the earthly temple. He's in the heavenly temple. And so this is a building mm-hmm. beyond the building, the biggest building that Isaiah has ever been in. Just a massive, massive heavenly structure. And it's shaking and filling with smoke. And so he shouts out, you know, woe to me. I'm ruined because I'm unclean and I live among an unclean people. And I've seen Yahweh. And that's. That's a big deal. So an angel flies to him with tongs and touches them to his mouth and say, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So I'd love to ask you just what, what does this imagery call to mind for you? Like, what does this sound like is happening? There's not a, there's not a, well, actually at the end of this, I mm-hmm. mean, I think that this is a, a thing where. There's a whole lot of meaning, and I'd love to hear just what kind of picture this draws up for you, or what does it feel like is happening? Yeah, I think for me, I hear so much about the like symbolism and imagery of fire in especially the Old Testament, and we hear this phrase, cleansing fire. And so I think when I hear the story of Isaiah in my brain, it just associates it with this cleansing fire. Um because, you know, his fear is so real. Like, he surely knows what's happened to people who have brushed the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I guess if you're going to die, or maybe he thought he was already dead, uh-huh. seeing <laughs> Yahweh is definitely, like, the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, with the, the seraphim, I literally just imagine like a crazy angel with tongs like you see at your grandpa's fireplace and a hot <laughs> coal just smacking it into his face yeah putting it putting them to his lips mm-hmm. and and you can imagine i mean the visceralness of that he would smell i mean depending on are we talking vision is is this 
is this quote unquote really happening physically or is it is it something that's happening in his mind? I don't again, I don't know how important those distinctions are, but the smelling of cooking flesh from your own mouth as it's seared um, and and a atonement is being made is it's being cleansed would be intense. Of course, Isaiah doesn't then cry out in pain. So we know that something beyond just right. what would physically be happening is happening here. But the the fear, I imagine, as the angels come down toward him would be would be huge. But then immediately what happens after the sin is atoned for is Yahweh asks for a volunteer and he says, I'm, you know, here I am, send me. But then we get this little message. And it's a message that's repeated in, I think, all four Gospels, at least three of the four, but I think all four. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. This is the message Isaiah is supposed to give to the people. Mm -hmm. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is... Hard. Because Yahweh's literally saying. It's like the riddle of a Disney villain. (laughs) It is like the riddle of a Disney villain. That's a little uncomfortable for us to say about Yahweh, but it does feel that way, right? Yes. Yeah. And and it's, but it's literally like, go out and preach. But they're not going to respond. And and there's maybe even an inclination that I'm going to make it so that they can't respond. And we see in this the um, the story of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, you know. And so Pharaoh takes a stance against Yahweh. But then when all the bad things start happening and his heart would quiver with fear and he would cave, Yahweh actually strengthens his heart so that he can stick to his cause. Yahweh mm-hmm. doesn't make him rebel. He just makes sure that fear doesn't stop him from rebelling. Right. right. That's the, the, so that the, the story can play out. And it seems like Yahweh is saying about his people, they've gone so far that now all the bad things that are coming, I'm not going to let the fear turn them. You know, they're going to stick it out. But that's also hard because he over and over again in Isaiah talks about the consequences he's bringing for the purpose of bringing repentance. And so yeah. this is just one of those tensions that's that's in the prophets and... I don't know. Isaiah 6, we tend to focus on the first half and the beautiful imagery. But this part, this is always a, a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a like key tenet of American Christianity or Western Christianity is the concept of free will. Mm. And reading this just feels very uncomfortable because mm-hmm. it feels like God might be heavily influencing people's response to mm-hmm. Isaiah. But, I mean, God is heavily influencing every thing about our world so yeah i think people get so focused on the here i am send me and you know mm-hmm. that's a great line it is. <laughs> so it is. but they, they don't like to read the few sentences that come after that well and since we're reading this chronologically right now and, and we read jonah not very long ago it has to feel a little unfair mm. because because jonah doesn't want to go but when he goes he preaches like seven words and an entire city repents, right? They fall on their knees in repentance. Isaiah's being told at the beginning, nobody's going to listen. Yeah. You're going to preach for 50 years and they're not going to listen. 
Ow! Like that's that'd be really hard. Yeah. Isaiah says, "Here I am, send me," and Jonah says, "Here I go. Don't find me. Do not call." When when he's got the easiest job in the world, and Isaiah has the hardest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. And some of the prophets, they really, I mean, they really mourn and grieve the ineffectiveness of their prophecies. You know, the their preachers, basically, is what they are. And their sermons are being written down. And it, But they're not just preachers. They're preachers who are getting specific messages from Yahweh, right? They're not, they're not like I am, preaching sermons on Sunday morning, going to temple and, and preaching. They're among the people with the spirit of Yahweh giving these important messages. And yet... The people are are often just completely unwilling to listen. They they may hear these these messages may get passed around, they may get written down or memorized and spread, but this they don't usually lead to repentance. And to have that long of a career with that little success, Isaiah almost certainly didn't know that here twenty eight hundred years later we'd still be reading him and being blessed by him. You just think about how sad it must have been to be a person in this position with so little effect. Right. Yeah. I relate as a teacher of middle school <laughs> students. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> to te teaching all day and Ugh. no one hearing me, but <laughs> not in the same way. Not I do not way. have as holy of a purpose as Isaiah. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Don't be a stubborn heifer this week. <laughs> and stay hungry, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>